All right. My name is John Lux. I have the privilege of serving here as the pastor. I say that every time I preach, but um, I really like serving here as the pastor. Uh, I don't know that I've told you all in aggregate what a pleasure it is to lead you in this church. Um, I'm going to take a minute here before we get into our sermon and talk about a couple things that I see God doing in our church in this season. Uh, There's two main things, and it's interesting. Both of the things that I sense God is gearing us up for are things I can remember from past seasons when I was new at this church. So if you're new here, I'm about to tell you what the deal is. If you're not new here, we're going to go back down memory lane. Number one, prayer and worship, worship and prayer. I can remember when I first started coming to Antioch, Brighton, People would talk about prayer and talk about worship in a way that was different. Like, I had gone to a church. I knew what prayer was. I knew what worship was. But at Antioch, it was kind of weird because people would come into prayer as though they were already in a two-way dialogue with God. Like, oh, God has given me this thing to pray for. Therefore, I'm going to pray for it, and it's going to happen. And the thing that really blew my mind is that it would happen. I had not been exposed to that. Um, And so that's something that I feel like God is bringing us into in a fresh way. Places of worship and prayer where we're interacting with God. God is interacting back with us. And we're in a two-way interactive experience of worshiping God and seeking him in prayer. Uh, And so much of the desperate nature of our prayer comes out of that place of relationship with Jesus. And that's something I see the Lord doing uh, in the season that we're going into as a church. And the second thing, right, you just heard from Matthew and Vivian about getting ready to go to France. Um, I can remember when I first came to this church, I was like, after a couple weeks, I was like, whoa, this church really has a thing about missions. Uh, At that time, like our decoration style, like our decor is like either flags or maps. Like you just choose A or B, okay? That's before we had like our own logo. Thank you, Courtney. Um, But like back in the day, used to be either flags or maps, so it's like, oh, I noticed that your office is maps and your office is flags. That's nice, okay? And what's the deal with maps and flags? This church really does have a thing about missions. Here's the thing that we have about missions. The purposes of Jesus in the earth are that all people, tribes, languages, and, and ethnic identities would be represented in their distinctiveness in eternal worship before Jesus, We'd like our church service to feel more like that, but we're also engaged in the global policy of Jesus moving towards that in everything. And I'm going to tell a story. I, I love this story. All right, I was, I'm not so old that I was here for this, but there's people in this room who were there. All right, when this church was still a church plant, like 20-ish years ago, they, they had so few people that they just met in a circle because otherwise there was no logical way to set up the chairs. Okay, that's how big the church was, and um, they ended up, they're like, cancel, ser- cancel services for two weeks. Why? So that they could go on a mission trip. I mean, their church has like 15 people. They are a short-term missions trip, and they canceled their church services so that the like four people on staff and the 10 people not on staff could go on a mission trip together. Why would they do that? Really, why would they do that? The only explanation is that the bigger purpose wasn't just to make this community happen. 
The bigger purpose wasn't just to do this and enjoy this and be here with God. It was to be here with God and to, sh is to show up for the global work of God's family business of reaching all people and nations. Amen? And so those same things that were true in the early months and years of starting this true church are still true today. They're a part of our spiritual inheritance. And if you've been at this church for 25 minutes, they're true for you also, all right? So those are two things uh, that I see God doing in our church uh, freshly in the season that we're in. And Matthew and Vivian, guys, they're the tip of the iceberg of a wave of missionaries that Antioch is going to begin sending out in the year ahead. Um, so, um, and again, there won't be room for everybody to support them. So get on it while there's still some space. All right. We are in a series preaching through the book of Romans. So let's get to it, shall we? Last week, in our three Summers in Rome series, you guys heard from our worship and staff director, uh, Becky Zukowska. She preached on the nature of atonement and salvation. And um, this week will really be kind of a part two uh, of Becky's sermon last week, part one. You know, like the primer and then the paint. It's like you put the primer on so that the paint sticks really good. I feel like maybe I'm the paint and last week was the primer. Uh, hopefully I'm not making a value statement there. If any of you are painters, you can let me know. Um, last week, as Becky mentioned, we hit a turning point, right? Six weeks on sin. We really, we really went over it. Six weeks on sin, and now we pivot to start um, about five weeks looking at salvation, right? And so I'm going to talk about the nature of that shift from sin towards salvation in the book of uh, Romans. Uh, we were just talking about France, right? They speak a language there called French. Anybody speak that language, French? One, two, it's like, what, what is with you French people? You're like, just... Nobody else can know but you, preacher. I speak it a little. Okay, it's cool to speak French. My mom was a French teacher. Now, if you go swimming in France, anybody go swimming on Thursday when it was 99? The swimming people also, just shame. Thank you, one person. Yeah. All right, y'all should have all swam that day. Um, in France, when you go to the pool, the lifeguards have something different written on their lifeguard uniforms because it's France. And... There are two things, two options that they can have written on their lifeguard uniforms. The first is the word maître nager, which literally means swim master. That has no relevance for the Romans at all. We're just going to put that over here. <laughs> ah, but the other word for lifeguard in French, sauveteur. Some of y'all speak better French than me can pick this up. Sauveteur. And what is a sauveteur? A sovitur is a savior. Thank you, somebody over here. A sovitur is a savior. So when you go to the beach or when you go to the pool in France, the lifeguard's uniform says savior in all capital letters, white on red. Doesn't that seem fitting? Could we, like, file a petition to change it in English? Right, because what is the lifeguard there to do? What is the problem they're there to solve? Right? There's a problem called drowning, and lifeguards are there to provide a needed service called saving. Now, let's break this down, this whole drowning savior thing, okay? When you are in distress in the water, you are not looking for a swim master. You are not looking for a swim instructor. You are not looking for a swim therapist. 
you want a savior. Okay? You want a savior. When you are in trouble drowning in the water, there is only one thing that matters to you. One, how deep the pool is. And two, you want to get rescued from the pool. Come on. That's what we're talking about in the book of Romans. We had six weeks on drowning, and now we're into five weeks on the nature of salvation. All right. Because when you're drowning in the pool, you don't think, I could really use some good advice right now. Or, gee, this is a good moment to think about self-care. Now, you need a savior. Amen, Antioch? All right. So, Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, in this, in this whole next section, he's talking about salvation. And he's answering and kind of anticipating the most reasonable questions we would ask about salvation. Like, what is salvation? How does salvation actually work? Who is it for? How do I get it? Is it for those people? Is it for me? And can I lose it? I mean, these are reasonable, relevant questions about the nature of salvation. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to come across nearly all of them being addressed by Paul in his letter to the Romans. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about something we don't talk about a ton here at Antioch Community Church, although we should. I'm going to talk about church history. Church history. Whoa, that's weird how it does that. For church history. All right. The history of the church has a lot to tell us about the nature of salvation and the way the church has understood salvation through history. Now, last week, Becky boasted that Martin Luther said her passage was the most important one in the Bible. Now, that brings two other questions. Number one, who's Martin Luther? And number two, why does he think that? Okay, <laughs> let's get into it. Martin Luther was a part of something called the Reformation, okay? Now, for about a thousand years, the church in Western Europe started getting more and more and more and more and more and more into a theology where salvation was all about what you did to deal with sin. Because there's a belief in something called purgatory that's not biblical. If you want to talk about it more, we can. Uh, come find me later. There's a belief about purgatory, which meant that you needed to manage the level of sin and punishment you were going to experience in the afterlife. And so in order to deal with that, people would go on pilgrimage to deal with their sin. People would give money to the church to deal with their sin. People would have church services conducted in their honor in order to deal with sin. Okay? That was, that was gradually becoming more and more uh, a part of the Western European church dealing with salvation. And this guy, Martin Luther, he's a Catholic scholar. And so every day he shows up and he's studying the book of Romans. Studying it, studying it, studying it, studying it. And he comes to this point where he's reading these same passages that we're preaching on, and he just can't take it anymore. Because what's presented in the book of Romans is not a salvation that is based on works. It's a salvation that comes from God by grace, and we interact with it by faith. Now, Martin Luther did a great job. He wrote so many piles of documentation about theology that we're never going to touch it all. Um, but he did also come up with a really good four-word definition of how salvation works, which I feel like is just about the size we have time for in our sermon today, okay? So his four-word definition, definition, 
well, really a three-word de definition because two of the words are the same. You'll see what I'm talking about. All right? Sola gratia. Oh, right. Yeah. Everything he did was in Latin because, you know, Middle Ages. All right? So sola grata, gratia, meaning grace alone. Sola fides, faith alone. All right? How does salvation work? Sola gratia, sola fides. Grace alone, faith alone. Grace alone, faith alone. Y'all Latin scholars can come find me later and correct my pronunciation. Don't hate me. Sola gratia, sola fides. Grace alone, faith alone. So let's take a look here at our passage in the book of Romans and see what it says about the truth that salvation comes by grace alone and it comes by faith alone. This is what it says in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. I'm reading from the NIV. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, that phrase, credited as righteousness, means accounted right with God. It's a, it's a, it's a phrase that refers to salvation. So when you keep hearing that, that's a salvation phrase. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. One translation calls them lawless deeds. I've always liked that phrase. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. All right. So I'm going to give a quick definition of grace. I'm going to give a quick definition of faith. And then we're going to examine this passage in the light of those two themes. Number one, grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Remember, remember Becky's example? Like you show up to take the bar exam and the person's just like, I just like you. You have favor with me. You can be a lawyer. Get out of here. You're a lawyer now. Right? That's grace. That's how grace works. You didn't earn it. Someone just gave it to you. I mean, after the amount of studying you have to do, the person's probably a little offended at that point. Grace is scandalous that way sometimes. All right, so that's Grace. Something you received which you could not earn, faith. Now, faith is a lot harder to define, isn't it? In a relational context with God, it's tied to the idea of trust. It's tied to the idea of belief. And again, we have to keep it in a, in a relational space, right? Where like we're, we're trusting in an active tense to a responsive God. Um, but trust and belief are two concepts we need to tie tightly to faith. And let's admit it. Faith is always going to be a little bit mystical. If you want a definition that works in a math problem, you may not get what you are looking for. All right, so Abraham. Why Abraham? Why David? Okay? If we were, if Paul had been writing this letter to the third graders of Rome, it would have been Pokemon. 
My daughter confirmed it. Pokemon, that's what would get to him, Dad. Um, Abraham and Moses and David, Moses isn't in this, all right, Abraham, Moses, and David, that's the pinnacle of the heroescape of the Jewish world. The, these guys were the representation of what it meant to be an awesome Jew. But Abraham's a funny one in this example, isn't it? If you've ever read Abraham's life starting in um, Genesis 11, Abraham was kind of a messed up guy. He was not a particularly good husband. He was not a particularly good dad. But... One thing Abraham did brilliantly in his life was that when God spoke to him or showed him something, he received it by faith, right? And just like we've been talking about, this two-way interaction, God doing things by grace and us responding by faith. That was what, that was what Abraham did with real brilliance in his life, right? And so um, when we look at Abraham's life, here's what it says, he, he was counted as righteous because he believed, not because of what he did. He did a few things that were good. He did a few things that were not great. But it was his faith that God counted as righteousness. Now, I'm going to take a look at this next section here, right? To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation, right? Any of you guys work in accounts receiving, accounts receivable? Praise God. That's a terrible, difficult job. Well, one of you does. All right, that's a really difficult job. I'm so sorry for you. Because when you have to call up people who owe you money, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll give it to you. You're like, no, this is not a gift. Do you understand? You need to pay. You need to pay for this thing. These are wages, all right? You know, your, your boss doesn't waltz down the aisle to your cubicle and be like, this is for you. Be like, no, this is my paycheck. You owe me this. Don't act like that. Right? The reason Paul's talking about wages, he's using the word wages and obligation, right? Wages are an obligation on an employer. You did the work, therefore they are obligated to pay you your wages. And this is the nature of grace, right? If, if salvation were based on what you did, then you could earn it. If you could earn it, then God would be obligated to pay you for it. If salvation could come by works, that would mean you could earn it. If you could earn it, then that would mean God would be obligated to rescue you because of what you did. And God does not work that way. Here's two reasons why. Number one. Reason number one, God does not work that way because God is God. That's a somewhat tautological thing to say. God is God. Nobody obligates God to do anything ever. God is God. Part of being God is that no one ever makes him do anything. I'll bet God loves being God. He cannot be obligated. The very closest that we can come is that our relationship with God, his love for us is so strong that he often, almost always, will respond to us in the place of love and tenderness. But we cannot obligate God because God is God. Reason number two that salvation doesn't go by works. 
God is just too generous and loving to work that way. Here's what I mean. Um, let's imagine, this is easy to imagine for many of you in this room, let's imagine two people, a man and a woman, they've just, they've been dating for a while and they're at that place where things are getting serious. And let's imagine that they go off to a, a beautiful place and they, they have a, a picnic lunch and it's just a perfect day and the guy gets out a ring and he gives it to the, to the girl and he says, hey, would you marry me? And then before she can answer, he's like, actually, forget it. You don't even need to give me your answer because I bought you this ring and I took you out to this nice place and I've taken you on all these dates and I wrote you all these emails and we've been talking for hours and hours and hours and hours. So for, you know, like, you don't even need to answer because guess what? I put in a lot of work. Therefore, you are obligated to be engaged to me, right? I'm, based on the looks I'm getting, some of you are offended even that I made this an example, right? This is wrong. Now, put words to what's wrong with it. What is wrong with that? Number one, this guy is a jerk. But number two, he has a fundamental misunderstanding of what engagement is, what marriage is, and what dating is, right? You want to have a healthy dating engagement in marriage? Gee, you better have it be working by grace up in here, amen? That is not how relationships work. A healthy relationship works by grace, all right? A healthy relationship works by grace. You do the dishes because the dishes need to be done, not for any other reason. There is no give and take. There's just give and give and then give and give, okay? It's working by grace. Y'all married people are like, mm. okay? It is not like wages, it is the opposite of that because it happens in the context of relationship. And so relational paradigms that flow from the love of God take over in priority. Things like graciousness, things like generosity, things like kindness rule the day inside of a relational context with our God. Number one, he can't be obligated by anyone because he is God. And number two, he chooses not to work inside this framework of obligation because he is so full of love for you and full of the desire to know you and grow in knowing you. Amen? All right. So sola gratia, grace alone. No one is good enough to earn it, and God does not work that way. Sola fides. I'm going to invite the band to come up as I kind of wind up this sermon here. Sola fides, right? Faith alone. Right? We've been talking about God as this two-way relational thing, right? God interacting with us, us interacting back with God. Now, grace is something only God can do for us in the department of salvation, right? But here, faith is our response back to God. So God, in his kindness, is providing salvation to us by grace. And for our part, we respond with this, with this faith in God. Now, faith, it means trusting that the salvation of God is real. It means trusting that the character of God really is such that he would rescue us on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. And so, I'm going I'm to put out here a couple different ways we can engage with this today. Right? Because God's grace, it's... It's like Wi-Fi. It's just on all the time, unless there's a problem, right? It's just on all the time. It doesn't ever get used up. At least at our house, it never does, right? 
The grace of God is in this room right now, not as a theological truth, but as a personal interactive thing that God is doing in the room. So that's something we can interact with in this space right now. That grace alone, the fundamental basis of salvation, we can interact with it. We can receive grace from God um, this morning. And number two, you think about what would really get God excited in this room? You know, it's not the everybody retreat. That's what's getting me excited. What would get God really excited in this room is faith. Faith. Right? Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus, he comes across people full of faith and he's like fired up, Jesus. Right? So what does it mean for us to respond by faith? I'm going to give a couple avenues. One, uh, we're going to interact with just saying out loud things that are true about God. Because that's an act of faith, isn't it? Number two, we're going to pray prayers in this room. When you pray a prayer out loud to a God that your eyes cannot see, that is an act of faith. And when you do that, your faith honors and pleases God. Not because you're, And your faith isn't earning you anything, because it doesn't work that way. But boy, is it a pleasure in the eyes of God to receive anything that we do by faith. Amen? All right, so I'm just going to pray here as we um, uh, begin to respond. Why don't you guys stand up with me? Jesus, this morning we receive your grace over us. Grace to face each new challenge. Grace for ourselves. Grace over every imperfect circumstance. Everything that doesn't seem to measure up, we receive your grace for it. We receive the grace of salvation right now in this space. And I ask, Lord, that you'd begin to stir up faith in this room. That you'd give us grace this morning to speak tender words in that step of faith that says someone is really listening when I say this. Would you bring us to places like that in this room as we worship you? And Lord, we do. I just ask for a tender expectation to be cultivated in every heart this morning. Lord, we love you. Come and work among us in Jesus' name.